This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of April 4th through 8th, 2022. And how are you doing, Kyle? Uh, I'm doing fine. We were chatting a little bit before we started recording. uh, But like April is, at least for me, and I know for a lot of teachers, kind of the doldrums, Mm. where we're just like, we're just going. We're just going. Uh, We have standardized testing next week, so that'll be a joy for everyone involved. But at least it breaks up the monotony, I guess. So, (laughs) yeah. How are you doing? Um, I am doing all right. We are heading into a very busy week in my profession. Um, Oh, what's that? um, Well, you may not have heard of it. No, um, it's Holy Week. Uh, It is also Passover this week for our Jewish friends. Um, So wishing happy holidays to those who are observing yeah, so it's Holy Week for uh, for Christian churches. Um, so lots going on around here this week, and my kids are on spring break also. Yay! Yay! Hooray! <laughs> um, I wish those things had not lined up in quite that way, but they did. So that's okay. We're going to make it work. Amen. Yeah. Anyway, we had Maya Bialik back with us this week on Jeopardy. So on Monday, April 4th, we have the contestants Cameron Connors, a high school social studies teacher from Rancho Santa Margarita, California, Sarah Cahallan, a news assistant from Logansport, Indiana, and Nell Klugman, a museum educator from Brooklyn, New York, whose one-day cash winnings total $24,401. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, changes on the U.S. map, All's Vel, the ends Vel, V-E-L in quotation marks, book parts reimagined, everything is golden, the hit of the decade, and Benjamin Franklin, a series of video clues read by American treasure Mandy Patinkin. <laughs> American treasure. I, I that's this a little strong. Was that a little strong? Is that awkward? I don't no. know. <laughs> he, is a, he is a treasure. He is a treasure. He's on TikTok. No. Yes, and his TikTok account is great. It's so great. I'll take your word for it. I am not on TikTok, but mm. I will take your word for it, and I believe that it would be. Yeah. Mandy Patinkin was also a correct response in my first Jeopardy game. Hmm. I didn't get it. I didn't get in on it. It holds a dear place in my heart for that yeah. reason. Also, all of the cool stuff. That, too, is another, yeah. another reason. All the cool stuff. Um, they did leave those Mandy Patinkin, Ben Franklin clues for the very end, which is not ideal in the Jeopardy round mm-hmm. because they will extend the jeopardy round to make sure you get all the video clues and then cut time from the double jeopardy round and uh in fact there were three clues in the double jeopardy round we didn't get to indeed there were but those were good clues and it was nice to oh yeah for sure to get them there was a clue that made me think about 
the importance of distinguishing these two things so that you uh, don't have an unfortunate mix up. Sarah got it correct. Um, so yay. Uh, Everything is Golden at the $400 level. Premiering in 2010, the opera The Golden Ticket is an adaptation of this beloved novel. The novel is Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. The film is called Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory um, for reasons that I have not researched, but I presume have to do with like sort of who the big name star is. Uh, yeah, that, that might be like, I remember, and I heard this one when I was a kid, so I don't know if it's true, but it had something to do with, like, you know, copyright stuff. Mm. But it doesn't make sense that the entire story and all the characters are like the Raw Dahl story. You just couldn't title it the same thing, you know? Right. But I, I think that's a common thing that people say is that it's because of copyright or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't, I'm not sure. It might be that, you know, Gene Wilder was a much yeah. bigger name than whoever played Charlie. So. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm Googling now, and I'm, the first hit that I found is that it was like a tie-in to the um, the candy. Mm. Um, oh, did like Nestle start the Wonka brand at that point? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Uh, I, I'm like researching it in real time, so <laughs> it's uh, probably well, you're not your best source of trivia information. No. Listeners, if anybody knows the real reason, give us a nice long Twitter thread. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so you need to you need to know uh those titles and that charlie and the chocolate factory is the novel um and willy wonka and the chocolate factory is the film mm-hmm. all right daily double number one is in the changes on the u.s map category at the 600 dollars level cameron finds it at pick number 21 he's at 3800 nell is at 1200 sarah is at 4400 and he wagers 2000 and gets a clue, the coastal town of Manchester, Massachusetts, had these three words added to its name in 1989. And he gets it correct with what is by the sea, which I only know because of the Casey Affleck movie. Yep. I did know a person, do know a person from Manchester by the sea. Um, well, that's believable for you. Yeah. <laughs> but other, I, I like that it's, it's not, it's not a big town or, you know, one that has a whole lot of like, you know, sort of widely known significant stuff going on, I think. Um, Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even know that Manchester by the Sea was actually the name of a town until this clue came, and I was like, huh. Guess that's I guess that's why they call it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, at the end of the Jeopardy round, Nell is at 2,200, Sarah's at 5,400, and Cameron is up to 8,200. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, Asian Monarchs, Birth of a Writer, Physical Geography, Brands, City Folk, and Words That Should Rhyme, which was a hard category it was for them really hard, and yeah. for me. Like, it was, they only got one, and I'm pretty sure that's the only, only one that I got to, yeah. I mean, with given enough time, probably could work around to it, but these were some tough clues. The $400 clue was a wine bottle topper and the curse of the drinking classes, according to Wild. That's cork and work. Uh, Nell said that, but didn't phrase it in the form of a question, so she was ruled incorrect, and uh, mm-hmm. Cameron picked it up. Um, but the other is like, I mean, the $2,000 clue, the last trace of something and a high level of importance for a person, that's vestige and prestige. And like, again, with with a lot of time, I could probably work my way through the, the you know, synonyms lists yeah. to get there, but oof. Yeah, those just... 
it feels to me like there are a lot of um, possible synonyms yeah. for each of those. And finding the overlap was really tricky. Yes. I did figure out the $800 level up here where ships are tied and a muffler. That's wharf and scarf. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was like, okay, dock. And what is a muffler that rhymes with dock? <laughs> I just didn't get anything because yeah. I don't think there is any. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> um, I just I just made a um, a connection here um, in the brands category at the two thousand dollar level. You never actually own this Swiss luxury watch, says its slogan. You merely look after it for the next generation. Nell tried what's a Rolex. That is a Patek Philippe, which I heard of only uh when i watched the first episode of the television show succession which we'll be coming back to in a while oh yeah yeah but that's a that's a plot point in that first episode heard a lot of good things about succession oh it's so good but it's it's it is it's very painful to watch but also Mm. it's so good that's what i love yeah (laughs) yeah there's a there's a combination of like there's some characters who are like painfully awkward mm-hmm. and like social situations that are painfully awkward and then just like an obscenely rich family self-destructing in slow motion. Mm. Um maybe they aren't self-destructing. I don't know. I've only watched the first season. Um but <laughs> maybe everything works out just fine. Yeah. Um <laughs> probably probably not. <laughs> yeah. Daily Double number two is in the birth of a writer category at the $1,600 level, and Nell finds it. It's the third pick. She has $3,400 to Sarah's $5,400 and Cameron's $8,200. She makes it a true Daily Double, which is a great choice in this situation. And she gets the clue. Georgia was the birthplace of this 1980s Pulitzer Prize winner, the eighth child of African-American sharecroppers. Uh, And she guesses who is Hansberry. I think she's clued into... Pulitzer and is maybe thinking drama. Yeah. But uh, Alice Walker is the correct response here, who won the Pulitzer for The Color Purple. The novel, not the subsequent Broadway musical. (laughs) Right. And uh, Daily Double number three is in the Asian Monarchs category at the $1,600 level. It's pick 16. Cameron finds it. Uh, He is up to 17,800. Nell is at negative 1,200. She just had a rough Mm -hmm. game. And Sarah is at 7,400. Cameron wagers 5,200. Gets a clue. For his reputation as a lawgiver, this king of ancient Babylon has his portrait in the chamber of the U.S. House of Representatives. He gets correct with who is Hammurabi. Mm -hmm. Was named after the code, I believe. (laughs) So at the end of the double jeopardy round um cameron has a lot game with twenty four thousand six hundred. nell is at 1200 so at least she has made it back into the positive she did that on the very last clue before the buzzer and like seeing sarah and cameron both be sort of relieved for her and happy for her was great i thought sarah's at nine thousand um we have the final jeopardy category current television And the clue, fittingly, the last name of the family at the center of this drama is from French for king. And I just talked about the correct response a minute ago. Well, yes, you did. A few more than a few few minutes ago. (laughs) A bit ago. Yeah. Um, So Nell knows it. 
Uh, she says, what is succession? Happy birthday, James. Um, no, which is incorrect. Happy birthday, James is not part of the title. Mm-hmm. Jeopardy had cracked down on uh, including messages, messages, written messages in your final Jeopardy responses for a while. Um, but they did let that one through. So I wonder yeah. if they're maybe chilling out about that. I um, mean, because James put one in like every game. Every. Yeah. And then people wanted to do it like him. And Yeah. And mm-hmm. we haven't seen very many of late, so yeah, yeah. So Succession is correct. It's a it's an HBO show. Um, it is it's good television. And uh, Nell has wagered two hundred. That brings her up to fourteen hundred. Sarah knows it as well, and she's wagered four thousand. Uh, brings her up to thirteen thousand. But Cameron had a lot game. He didn't know it. He had what are the dot 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 question mark. Uh, so the Roy family is the uh, the wealthy family of succession uh, with their like media empire or whatever. Mm. Um, Cameron's wagered 400. That drops him down to 24,200, but uh, still gives him the win by quite a bit. Yes, indeed. Uh, so on Tuesday, we have the contestants Matea Roach, a tutor from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Kathleen Snyder, a government contractor from Arlington, Virginia, and Cameron Connors, a high school social studies teacher from Rancho Santa Margarita, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $24,200. And we have the Jeopardy round categories. How are you fixed for blades? Last names the same. Instrumental TV themes. Clear eyes, I in quotation marks. Full arts. And can't lose. Cameron started in the can't lose at the $200 level, and the clue was on running for re-election in 2024, this law alum from Leningrad State University said, I haven't decided. Uh-huh, sure, man. Uh, Matea got that correct with who is Putin, and of course they put in the corner, recorded January 27th, 2022. Oddly, I didn't see anyone on social media talking about snowflakes, mm-hmm. about this note. Weird. Yeah. Weird indeed. It's almost like out all that outrage is um, mm-hmm. unfounded. Yeah. And not real. Mm-hmm. Could I just note that I liked the clear eyes, full arts, can't lose. Uh, yeah, I figured you did. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a uh, Friday Night Lights reference. The thousand dollar level of full arts. I think we've talked about this before, but... Um, there's one name that you need to remember when it comes to mobiles. The clue is Pete Mondrian, quote, saw my line quiver, said this sculptor. Inspired, he began to make mobiles, or mobiles, who whole pieces that quiver. And that's Alexander Calder. It was a triple stumper. Mm-hmm. If the question is about mobiles, or mobiles, it is Alexander Calder. Yep. There is not a second mobile artist you would be expected to know. Yeah tricky uh triple stumper at the 800 level of clear eyes uh this latin abbreviation means in the same place cameron tried what is in situ which is what i had thought of as well but yeah. that's not correct kathleen tried what is i e um which i don't remember what it stands for in latin but it means something like that is um or like that is to say so that's not correct ibid is what uh, they were looking for, which, like, when you're doing footnotes, if you're quoting the same work or citing the same work multiple times in a row, you would put, like, the full title in the first citation, 
And then for subsequent ones, you would put IBID and then just the page number. Yeah, so that's that's what they were going for there. But in situ was the first thing I thought of. Yeah, I thought so too. And then that was ruled incorrect. And I was like, well, what does that mean? If it doesn't mean in the same place, it just means in the place or like yeah. in like in, at that in place yeah i guess yeah yeah so yeah, and then Mayim, of course flexed on us that she has a doctorate i get it you did a dissertation very okay. fancy yeah. yeah i used it too in my much shorter thesis yeah a few times because half of it was my own analysis mm-hmm but this is not a podcast where i talk about my master's thesis although maybe that could be a bonus episode that we do Hmm. where we talk about our master's thesis. <laughs> um, I, I didn't actually have a master's thesis. For the for the <gasps> master's of divinity, you don't necessarily do one. Um, uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You can if you're heading toward like a more academic field mm. or like just if you want to, um, yeah. but it's not necessarily a, a requirement of the program. Interesting. Um, yeah. But I could talk about my undergrad thesis. Okay. My undergrad thesis concluded with hope that uh, the political slash religious divide of America was becoming more complicated and less bifurcated, perhaps heading towards some bridge building. So I'm gonna I'm gonna rule rule my undergrad thesis as incorrect. <laughs> we that did not happen. You sure? Yeah, pretty sure. Pretty sure. Um. Anyway. Daily Double number one is in the full arts category at the $600 level, and Cameron finds it as the 24th pick. Uh, he has 800 at this point to Kathleen's 2400 and Matea's 2800. He wagers 1000 as well he should, and gets the clue a new exhibit, This Movement Beyond Borders, has a 1936 work showing high heels and a rosary tangled in what looks like fishnets. And he tries what are nuns. Nuns beyond borders. Nuns beyond borders. And high heels. <laughs> I mean, I presume that maybe maybe his mind went the same place that mine did, which is that beyond borders sounds like doctors beyond. Uh, no, that's doctors without borders. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't make any sense, right? But like somehow I was like, oh, well, like, like what? How are you supposed to approach this? And are they looking for the name of a profession? You mm-hmm. know, so I could sort of see how he got there, but surrealism is what they were looking for surrealism beyond Beyond borders borders. yeah i don't for some reason the inclusion of fish nets made me think of dolly's fish head like cocktail waitresses at the Mm -hmm. at the surrealist yeah exhibit in at the at the the world's fair so Mm -hmm. if anyone wants to catch up on Salvador Dali and surrealism. There's a good deep dive from Kyle in the back catalog. Indeed, there is. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Cameron is in the red with negative a thousand. Kathleen is at twenty four hundred. Matea is at forty six hundred. And we have the double Jeopardy categories: world geography, dogs, scrambled novels, adjectives, movie critics, and six degrees of Francis Bacon movie critics was not about movie critics uh it was it wasn't about people who do like professional movie analysis and reviews uh it was about moments in films where one character criticizes another character Mm -hmm. which i'm not quite sure how you even pull together 
five of those? Like what, like, do you just need to have it all in your brain? Probably. You, yeah. Probably. Yeah. It's just, I, I have these lines memorized. Yeah. Yeah. These are, I mean, they are many of them films that people Would know quote. well, quote yeah. often. Yeah. A fish called Wanda, big Lebowski, Anchorman, mm-hmm. the hangover silence yes. of the lambs. Yeah. Yeah, they're quote they're although, quotable films. Although I will say, Silence of the Lambs is the first one that the, the four hundred dollar level put me in a different mindset than, than the other than the, than other the very like comedy comedies. Yeah, that came up. Uh, yeah, one of there. these things is not like the others. Yeah. Although, if you approach Silence of the Lambs like a comedy, I wonder how that works. Just I wonder. Poor, probably poorly. Yeah. Daily Double number two is in the dogs category at the uh, $1,600 level. 13th pick. Kathleen finds it. She is at 5200 Cameron is at 1400 Matea is up at to 9800 She wagers 4000 which I really like. Mm-hmm. Gets the clue. In legend, these low-slung Welsh dogs were used to pull ferry carriages. And she gets it correct with what are corgis? Mm-hmm. I love corgis. Yeah. Um, and Daily Double number three is in Six Degrees of Fa- Sir Francis Bacon. And it's uh, at the $1,600 level as well. Matea finds this one at the 28th pick. So one one Daily Double for each contestant. Uh, she has 17000 to Cameron's 1400 and Kathleen's 16000 She wagers just 1,000. So if she misses, she will drop down to be tied with Kathleen. And she gets the clue. Francis's dad was pals with Matthew Parker, who in this job from 1559 to 1575 gave the Anglican church its dis- distinct identity. And she gets it correct with the Archbishop of Canterbury and notes that she should have wagered more money. Yes. Matteo was uh, uh, vocal. Yeah, she she gave a lot of commentary. Yeah, there was, was there were a lot nice. of side comments. Um, yeah, yeah. She showed she was either very nervous or very comfortable. Mm-hmm. Either way, I liked it. Yeah. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, uh, Cameron is at twenty two hundred. Kathleen and Matea are very close. Kathleen is at sixteen thousand, and Matea is at uh, eighteen thousand. We get the final jeopardy category: classic games, and the clue: Ruben Klammer who passed away in 2021 at age 99, developed this game relatable to, quote, literally everyone on Earth. And it's a good thing that's in quotes, (laughs) because Mm. that's wildly untrue if you were to claim that as an actual fact. Right. Um, But Cameron uh, gave a nice little meta answer there uh, with what is Trivial Pursuit. That is incorrect. He wagered everything but a dollar. Kathleen got it correct with what is life, the game of life. And she wagered 5,001. And Matea also got it correct and made a cover bet of 14,001. So she wins with $32,001. So on Wednesday, April 6th, we have the contestants Lana Altman, a digital programming manager from Southington, Connecticut. Vernon Nung, an associate professor of English from Tacoma, Washington. And Matea Roach, a tutor from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, whose one-day cash winnings totaled $32,001. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, U.S. Bodies of Water, It's All Relative, Indescribable, responses will be made up of letters found in the word describable, 
Tombstones, The Magnificent Seven, and Westerns. So we've got a little mini theme across those three yep. final categories. I like the six category themes better. Oh, when it's the whole Yeah, when it's the, the whole, whole board. board. Yeah, I mean that's hard to do though, you know. Yeah. Um Ann Landers and uh Dear Abby, Dear Abby. Mm-hmm. Abigail Van Buren, come up at the $400 level of It's All Relative. Um, they were an incorrect guess a while back. Last week, the week before. Last not too, week. I yeah, think last, just last week. Yeah, yeah not very long ago. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of a fun coincidence, I thought. Mm-hmm. I also liked how things sort of played out at the $1,000 level of U.S. bodies of water. Um, the clue there was, as indicated by its name, this large lake formed by Denison Dam is shared by Texas and its neighbor to the north. Vernon tried what is Texarkana, which is definitely a thing, but I don't know what. What is Texarkana? It's a city. It is a city, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Texarkana is incorrect. Lana tries what is Texahoma. And um, Mayim did not immediately rule her incorrect. I think she was maybe waiting for a ruling on whether that pronunciation was close enough. Mm -hmm. Um, And Lana changed to Texoma. um, And that is what they were looking for. So she changed her response in time. And Mayim had not ruled her incorrect at that point. So she got credit for that. Uh, Daily Double number one is in the U.S. Bodies of Water category up at the $800 level. Uh, It is pick number 14 in the round, and Matea finds it. She is at 5,600, Vernon's at negative 200, and Lana's at negative 400, and with that big of a lead, she says, I'll make a conservative wager and just go 1,000. Which I would say, if you have that big of a lead, you can be more, you can give a a less conservative wager, because you literally cannot drop below them right now. Because they're both in the red. But anyway, she wagers a thousand. Gets a clue. Seneca and Cayuga are the largest of the 11 lakes in New York State, collectively called these. And she gets it correct with what are the finger lakes? She kind of rolls her eyes as another another example of probably should have bet more. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Matea is at 12,800. Vernon is at negative 1,800. And Lana is at 1,400. And we get the Double Jeopardy categories, physiology, landmark legislation, parts of the whole, in your preface or preface, women in music, and on the double with on in quotation marks. Uh, O-N will appear twice in each correct response. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed the parts of the whole category. I did too. Yeah. So they provided some components of a physical object listed some components and you needed to respond with what the object in question was. So corkscrew, nail file, sharp blade, iconic red handle that was a Swiss army knife. That was the $400 level. Matea got that one at the $1,200 level minaret, mirab ablutions area. That's a mosque. Matea got that one as well. So we had like kind of a big range Mm-hmm. I thought the the sixteen hundred dollar level was uh was tricky but gettable. It noted it was a handheld item and then listed canopy, shaft, springs, and handle. Um and that's that's an umbrella. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The in your preface category at the sixteen hundred dollar level was in the preface to this collection, Whitman says 
the quote universe has one complete lover and that is the greatest poet and because of your education to me about poetry i i wasn't sure because normally when i hear collection by whitman i'm like oh that's leaves of grass Mm -hmm. and then lana said what a song of myself and i was like oh no is that what it is is it actually song of myself but is song of myself actually just a poem and not I, th- a collection? I think song of myself is just a poem which again which the, now appears. that i know more i'm not sure <laughs> yeah that is the risk of knowing more mm-hmm. is that sometimes jeopardy is asking you for the like one best known yeah. thing yeah song of myself is a poem that's in leaves of grass in leaves of grass okay mm-hmm. Well, I mean, she said it, and I was like, oh, no, was it Song of Myself? And I yet again got another Song of Myself question wrong. But that was incorrect. It actually was Leaves of Grass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I was I was validated in, in thinking Leaves of Grass first, but I had that momentary stress. Yeah. That unbearable stress of possibly being wrong for half a second. Uh-huh. I, I know that stress. <laughs> I'm sure we all do. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daily Double number two. Two is in the landmark legislation category at the $2,000 level, and Matea finds it as the 25th pick. She has 22800 at this point. That's more than 10 times as much as the other two contestants who are tied at 2200 apiece. She wagers 5000 and gets the clue, Congress passed the first of these acts in 1866, Congress passed another big one in 1964, and she knows that it is the Civil Rights Act. Yep. And she also finds Daily Double number three, which is the last pick in the round. It's at the $2,000 level of physiology. She's up to 27800 and the other two are still tied at $2,200. Uh, so she only wagers 1000 gets the clue. This type of joint, and they showed a picture with a three-word name, allows for the greatest range of motion, forwards, backwards, sideways, and rotating. And she gets it correct with what is ball and socket. And she does another kind of, she, she another eye roll of probably should have bet more. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mayan points out that she got 35 correct responses in this game, which is pretty good. That is, it's Pr- impressive. Pretty, pretty good. Yeah. So. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, um, Matea is in a lock position with 28,800. Uh, Vernon and Lana are, as we said, tied at 2,200. And we have the final Jeopardy category, small countries. And the clue, French, Italian, and Swiss nationals make up about half of its population of 38,000. Uh, Vernon wrote down what is Liechtenstein? And had maybe a little note. He wagered 2197 So all but $3. That drops him down to 3 bucks. And Lana tried what is Malta. That is also not correct. And she wagered 2199 dropping her down to $1. So she will finish in third place behind Vernon's $3. Three $3. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and... Um, Matea had written down what is Liechtenstein and then without the final end, crossed it out and switched to Monaco and Monaco is correct. So uh, yeah, Monaco borders France and Italy and Matteo wagered 10,000 
uh, bringing her up to 38800 uh, and giving her a two-day total of $70,801. Yeah. Yeah. Big wins. Mm-hmm. And so on Thursday, we have the contestants Reagan White, a college student from Manahawkin, New Jersey. Mike Janella, a sportscaster from Astoria, New York, and Matea Roach, a tutor from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, whose two-day cash winnings, like we just said, is 70801 And we have the Jeopardy round categories, World War II, Literature for Young Readers, Computers and the Internet, Palindromic Words, Ballpark, and Figure. And uh, Mike is notably a sportscaster. So he was pretty happy to see that ballpark category. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, he did pretty well. Uh, the $1,000 clue was a triple stumper. Roy Campanella, Biz Mackey, and Judd Wilson, who played for the city in the Negro Leagues, appear in this park's Birdland artwork. Uh, and so if you think about, got to think about a bird. You know, what are the birds? There are a number of birds. Reagan guessed what is Chicago. But uh, if you think of the Orioles, that's Oriole Park. Mm-hmm. They made Mayim say poop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Got her. Yep. $1,000 level of palindromic words. It's the race structure at the back of a sailing ship. No one rang in. She had to say poop. <laughs> it came to my mind, and I was like, I was pretty sure it was right, but I also was pretty sure that if I had been standing on the stage, I would have been weighing... <laughs> The potential thousand dollars if I was right against the potential viral moment if I was wrong. Right. <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> as long as you give it a little chuckle afterward, then no one can have power over you. Yeah. Uh, Daily double number one is in the computers and the internet category at the six hundred dollar level, and Mike finds it at the eighteenth pick. He has 2,200 to Mateus 2,800. Uh, Reagan's still at zero. Um, he makes it a true daily double, which is a great move here. Mm-hmm. Um, and gets the clue, old monitors needed a screensaver, which moved so it wouldn't burn in. Today, you can use this static image, also a home decorating item. He says he is regretting his wager. And then as the buzzer is sounding, he tries what is a curtain. They were looking for wallpaper. Yes. Wallpaper. I believe yeah. uh, when he found that clue, he said something along the lines of, scared money don't make money. <laughs> so let's bet it all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, classic. Uh-huh. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Mateus at 6,600. Uh, Mike has dropped down somewhat from his from the zero he dropped to. He's at negative 600 now. Reagan's at 2,400. And we have the double Jeopardy categories. That painting has a title. In the city, quote Paris, also, also known as quotes. Right. The awful sound of music, documentaries, and who wants dessert? I always want dessert. I sort of wondered how things were going to go with this $800 level of who wants dessert. Uh, there was a picture of a cake with kind of, you know, rainbow speckles baked into the cake and the clue colorful sprinkles baked in the batter turn ordinary birthday cake into this festive type but don't toss it in celebration uh reagan rang in and said what is funfetti and that was accepted uh mayam said yes funfetti or confetti i believe funfetti is 
trademarked. I think it is. Yeah. It might not be, but because I've seen it in a lot of places, but it might. I think it is trademarked. I think probably if you've seen it in a lot of places, it's just uh, small businesses doing some uh, some, some infringement. <laughs> yeah, probably. I ain't, I ain't a narc, though. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Snitches um, get stitches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they can't stop people from calling it a confetti cake because, you know. Right. Confetti is a thing Mm -hmm. if you haven't seen man on wire which was mentioned at the 400 hundred dollar level of documentaries it's a it's a good it's a good one it's nerve-wracking even though you know it's going to be fine but do you yeah i would not Um, want to watch that yeah um they were asking between the towers of which complex did Philippe Petit do his daring and illegal 1974 type tightrope walk in the documentary Man on Wire? And uh, of course, it was the World Trade Center. And mm. um, yes. Then after that, you can watch Free Solo, and then you will have used uh, all of the adrenaline in your body. Yeah. Goodness gracious. Good, good for them. Yeah. Never me. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you. Uh, Daily Double number two is in That Painting Has a Title. It is at the $1,600 level, pick number 23. Uh, Reagan finds it. She is at 12,000. Matea is at 12,200. And Mike is at 1,800. And uh, she wagers 2,000. And the clue is, turns out Gainsborough originally put a dog in this 1770 portrait of a young lad clad in shades of indigo. I didn't quite remember Gainsborough, but the the use of the of the word indigo made me think, huh? I wonder what term they're avoiding, and that clued me into the what the correct response was. Uh, Reagan unfortunately had nothing, as she stated, uh, and that is the blue boy. Mm-hmm. The blue boy. I had learned that one by missing it in I don't know Learned League or something. something so yeah. yeah, Daily Double number three is in quote Puri. The potpourri categories. They just, just keep coming. They just keep coming. Um, Documentaries puri. <laughs> in the city puri. Anyway, it's at the $1,600 level. And uh, Matea finds this one as the 26th pick. So, hey, one daily double for each contestant in this game as well. Yeah. Uh, she has 13400 at this point to Mike's 1800 and Reagan's 10,000. Uh, she wagers 3,000, so she's looking to keep the lead by a slim margin if she misses. She gets the clue. Providing a later history book title, Stephen Vincent Bennett wrote, Bury My Tongue at Champmedy, Bury My Heart at This Place. Matea knows that, that one. It is Wounded Knee. Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Um, mm-hmm. I read the history book by that title recently, and it was rough, but um, a, a very good book about some very tragic and upsetting history. Yeah, but that gives that extends Matea's lead. Yep. So going into final Jeopardy, uh, she is at sixteen thousand four hundred. Mike is at 1,800, and Reagan is at 11,600. We have the final Jeopardy category, Inventions. And the clue is, patented in 1955, it did not go over well in the high-end fashion world, but the then-new aerospace industry found it very useful. Uh, Mike (laughs) wagered 
$7 and wrote, What is I'm going to lose, but the Mets will win it all this year. Boo. Uh, that is incorrect, because the Mets will not win it all this year. And also, that's not what they were looking for in an answer. Uh, so he loses his $7. Uh, Reagan, bet it all. <gasps> it's a, a bit much there. Yeah. I would say you want to stay above Mike's all in. Mm-hmm. Would probably be ideal. Yep. Um, and wrote, what is pantyhose? So she drops to third place. Like, even there, that cost $1,000, because mm-hmm. Mike and his... Ends up in second place because Reagan, or, uh, Matea also got it incorrect with what is nylon. Uh, wagered a, made a cover bet of 68-1, and uh, she remains the winner. But it was Velcro that yep. they were looking for, mm-hmm. which is interesting. That I never really thought of Velcro being used for clothing outside of toddlers, but I guess if when it was first invented, that would make sense. Yeah. And on Friday, April 8th, we have the contestants Abigail Davis, a college administrator from Clarksville, Georgia, Tom Newcomb, a real estate agent from Baltimore, Maryland, and Matea Roach, a tutor from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, whose three-day cash winnings total 80400 And we have the Jeopardy round categories television, multiple meetings, potpourri, Pulitzer winning characters, uh, they tell you the characters and you have to name the prize winning play or musical. Been there, like being like B E A N, and done that. Done that was just things that people did. Which is called history <laughs> or trivia. Yes. <laughs> Potpourri also is just called it's trivia. Also, yeah, that's stuff. <laughs> Maybe they should make the potpourri category really super honest sometime and be like leftover clues from previous games. <laughs> Yeah, I think they have done that actually once in a while. Yeah, but also that takes away some of the mystique, you know. You got to yeah. leave something to the imagination. Uh huh. Um, the thousand dollar clue of Popery was a triple stumper. It was uh, sailing from Portugal in July 1497. This explorer rounded the Cape of Good Hope and reached Mombasa in April of the next year. Uh, nobody ventured to guess. That's Vasco da Gama, and uh, I will always remember that. Uh, credit to my AP European history teacher. I had a lot of issues with the way he ran the class, but one thing that sticks in my mind is that he insisted that the, uh, the children's game that you play in the pool, uh, should not be Marco Polo, but should be Vasco da Gama because Marco Polo was not in the water. (laughs) And that is how I remember Vasco da Gama. I like that. The more distance I have from the time that everyone was really into sex in the city, the more I am perplexed by that bit of like collective insanity. <laughs> like we all just related to them so much. What were we thinking? Um, uh, I don't know. <laughs> you because did not I relate. had that thought at the time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, good job. But Thanks. I also was not the target audience. Yeah. Believe it or not. Of of the many things that sex in the city has inflicted upon us as a society, one of the worst is the phrase "and just like that," which was the <laughs> was the the correct response to the eight hundred dollar level of television. They wanted to know the title of the follow up show to Sex in the City. Collective insanity, I tell you. <laughs> It's amazing those like 
how how very zeitgeisty some of some of these shows are that like mm-hmm. in the moment it's a big deal and then not that far out you look back and you're like wow a lot of people were really into that uh-huh yeah i never i forgot to hop on the tiger king bandwagon <laughs> before i left <laughs> yeah that one was much shorter than than others yeah that that passed quickly mm-hmm. but you know that's that's why it's important to have things like Lost or Game of Thrones, where the end of it is just so bad that everyone can just get off the train themselves <laughs> and realize it. Like when it ends, you know, it comes to a grinding, crashing halt and you're like, oh, yeah, no. The way Game of Thrones wrote wrote such a bad ending that it just removed itself as like a cultural phenomenon just from the from the map. Yeah. Which, you know, as a fan of the books, I guess still leaves a lot of room for the books to be good, which is nice. But mm-hmm. if they ever get written. If, yes. If, if indeed. Did. Fun yep. is a fun way to put it. The deep dive <laughs> was fun. The play is not fun. The play is not fun. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but the deep dive was fun. Yeah. So you can find that in the back catalog. Um, I just, I'll just keep plugging the back catalog. It's yeah, we're we doing do that now. a lot this week. Yep. And by this week, I mean every episode. All the time. All right, Daily Double Number One is in the Pulitzer winning characters category at the $800 level. It's two clues below that streetcar uh, clue. It's pick number 29, very late in the round. Abigail finds it. She is at 1600 Matea is up to 6400 and Tom is at 200 She really drew 1600 all of it. And gets a clue... Arano and Moss, real estate salesman, 1984. And she guesses what is Biloxi Blues, but that is Glen Gary Glen Ross. Mm-hmm. Which I, I know is a thing. Yes. And now I know two characters from it. Yeah. Third prize is you're fired. Okay. That's that's Glen Gary That's Glen. the line. Yeah. Se- second prize is a set of steak knives. Is that? I, I, don't, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I know nothing except George Clooney. Oh, was, was he in? Hmm. Was it George Clooney? Was it Matt Damon? A- Alec was Baldwin. It, was it Alec Baldwin? I don't. I, don't I know. mean, it was a play before it was a movie. Sure. Right. This this isn't important. <laughs> yeah. Um. Let me just like. I doubt that any of our listeners are people who like go around quoting Glengarry Glen Ross all the time but just in case like just a note that like it's not supposed to be aspirational <laughs> okay <laughs> there, there are there's some confusion out there oh yeah no there's there's a lot yeah about and maybe not necessarily about this I don't know but we find that an awful lot these days. People like quoting or pointing to things as though they're meant to be aspirational. It's like, no, like, no, that is a, that that is a piece a of media about toxic masculinity yes, and this, the death of that, the American dream. So you, you, you are missing the point entirely. Uh, <laughs> it's, you're not even missing the point. You are going in the opposite direction of the point. Yeah. Anyway. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Matea is at 7,400. Tom's at 200 and Abigail is down at zero. We have the Double Jeopardy categories, Ain't No Century Like the 17th Century, What Kind of Place Is This, Norse Mythology, Writing, It's a Living, R&B Music, and M Power, E-M in quotation marks to begin every correct response. 
Mm-hmm. Kyle, is an embouchure the mouthpiece? I am so glad you brought that up because I was going to. No. I mean, unless in, in, unless in other parts of the world they use that term to refer to the mouthpiece, no. So the $1,600 clue there in Empower uh, says, French gives us this word for the mouthpiece of a wind instrument. And no, it is not the mouthpiece. Do you know what the embouchure is? I believe the embouchure is like the like the shape that you make with your mouth, right? Like the it Indeed. is the like the it's like the the pucker, right? Or the I mean, it's not a pucker actually, but it's like it's that it's the the like the shaping of like of like your face to mm-hmm. work with your instrument. That is correct. It is Thank the you. shape <laughs> of your face, and particularly of your mouth, which is where bouche comes in. Mm-hmm. It is the it is the shape of your mouth to make the instrument work. So mm-hmm. uh, that clue came on. It said it, and I went, uh-uh. And my wife was like, mm, you better call him. You better call <laughs> Jeopardy. Better let him know. Yeah. I did not do that, though. Yeah. I also thought Matea had, like, maybe a little, like, I thought I heard an extra R in there somewhere. And like I... Sure? Yeah. Nah. Yes. And it didn't sound like a valid French pronunciation to me, but also... She's Canadian, so she, I think, gets a little bit more French adjacency than me. <laughs> sure. Um, so I wondered yeah. if they were going to let that by or get persnickety about it, but they uh, they accepted well, the it. Well, cl- they better. The clue was incorrect <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Like, that's what they're going to get upset about? Oh, come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you haven't looked into Norse mythology, Neil Gaiman has a very good collection of, I guess... It's not really retelling. It's just kind of like his transcriptions, kind of, of yeah. Norse mythology. Because he's not really, like, changing the stories or or adding anything to it. It's just, he just, like, put them all in a book. So Yeah. And and made them good, like, made it good storytelling. Yeah, there's, you know, there's some art to it, you know, with the, mm-hmm. with the pacing and the dialogue and the word choice. But, yeah, no, they right. are, they yeah. are pretty direct tellings. Yeah, they're, they're, they're the, not they the they're not inspired by you know, they're not modernizations or like, right, you know, it's not whatever. Not thing. Yeah. All right. Daily double number two is in what kind of place is this at the twelve hundred dollar level? And Matea finds it as the eighth pick. She has twelve thousand two hundred to Tom's two hundred and Abigail's zero. Uh, and she wagers two thousand and gets the clue smaller than it sounds this illinois place was designated home of superman in 1972 matea says what is peoria that's in illinois <laughs> um, and that's not correct it is in illinois uh, it is it is mayam informs her that it is metropolis the only thing that came to mind for me in res- I, I mean, I know once I saw it, once I heard the response, I was like, oh, well, of course. Um, mm-hmm. But somehow Smallville came to my mind. The uh, mm-hmm. the um, sort of Superman inspired TV series from the early 2000s. And that's where my brain went. Well, Smallville is the town that Superman grew up in. 
Right. Before he moved to Metropolis. Mm-hmm. To yeah. The big city. But it's not, I mean, it sounds very small. Though, right. So right? It, like, yeah, it doesn't fit the clue at all. Yeah. No, no, no. Smaller than it sounds. Like, does Smallville sound big? No. Yeah. But that's interesting to me. Like, I, it did not occur to me that there was actually a town called Metropolis in Illinois. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daily Devil number three is in the uh, writing it's a living category at the $1,600 level. Tom finds this one at pick number 22. He is at 3,000. Matea is at 17,000. And Abigail is at zero. And he wagers all 3,000. Just got to bet it all. He gets the clue. Screenwriters, you could do worse than to follow script guru Sid Field's checkpoint number four. Quote, all drama is this type of struggle. And he does not know. He offers what is pain. That is incorrect. But that is conflict. All drama is conflict. I thought that was a challenging one in that if you didn't know the quotation, you didn't really get a lot of guidance toward yeah. what type of struggle you should be. There are many types of struggle. Yeah. I agree. I had that same feeling of like, of, of it, it's guesswork if you don't know the quote. Yeah. And like, I mean, maybe it's a famous quote, but... Yeah, not know. not to me. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I hadn't heard the quote before. I thought it was an interesting situation to be 22 clues into Double Jeopardy and have Matea be the only one with money on the board. Yes. Um, yeah. It, it was interesting. I don't know how often that happens, but... Not very. Not very. Yeah. <laughs> Not very at all. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Matea is in a lock position with 22,200. Uh, Tom has made it back up to 400. Abigail has made it to 3,600 uh, with a few uh, late game gets. And we have the final Jeopardy category, 19th century literature. And the clue, the Strand Union Workhouse, whose rules prohibited second helpings of food, inspired a setting in this 1838 novel. And they all got it. Tom had what is Oliver Twist, and then some letters in parentheses, GGWP. Good game, well played. Oh, okay. Is that what that means? You're not a gamer, yeah. I'm not. That's what that means. (laughs) I was, I, I thought GG was good game. I didn't recognize WP. So I wasn't sure what was going on there. Um, but thank you. <laughs> now I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wagered 100. So that brings him up to 500. Abigail has what is Oliver Twist and a $2,500 li- wager. That takes her up to 6100 2500 is probably bigger than she should have gone. Right? Like, yeah, she's got Tom locked out as long as she stays above 800 she w- risked dropping below 800, but it all works out fine. Um, and Matea has what is all of her twist. She wagered just 2,000 this time, giving her a total of 24,200 for the day and 104,600 for her four wins. She'll be back next week. She's mm-hmm. good. She's yeah. doing real good. Yes, she sure is. So this is the time in the middle of the episode 
maybe closer to the end of the episode. It's a short deep dive this week uh, where we take a break and remind you that we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potent potables. And the funds from that help us to offset the cost of making this podcast. Um, so if that's something that you have a couple dollars a month to contribute to, you can come on over and sponsor us. Um, we have some exclusive content behind the paywall there. Um, not a whole lot, but a few things. We put the quiz questions up every week before the episode goes live right after we finish recording so that you can get a sneak peek of those. And we add things here and there as we are able and inclined. Um, but also, uh, we don't feel like we can ask you for money without acknowledging that there are more important things to devote your funds to than our podcast. So a couple of those that are especially close to our hearts are blacklivesmatter.com, communityjusticeexchange.org, the Stop AAPI Hate GoFundMe, and rescue.org. Um, so if you're thinking about places to devote your resources, um, we'd encourage you to check out one or more of those. Absolutely. Do you have deep dive guesses, Kyle? I do. Are we talking okay. about Alice Walker? We are not. Although I could. I mean, I, I, yeah, I could have, but I, I didn't. Chose not to. Yeah. Are we talking about Seven Against Thebes? We are not. Are we talking about the Transcontinental Railroad? Oh, no, we are not. Um, okay. Yeah. So in the Wednesday game, in the on the double category, at the $1,600 level, this bias is a psychological term for how pre-existing ideas are supported. Um, and no one got that, uh, which surprised me. But, you know, it could be something about how the clue was written or just what information I've encountered. Uh, that's confirmation bias. And uh, cognitive biases is... Um, a topic I've explored a little bit. There's an enormous amount of information there and like a lot of active research so that new ones are being identified and old ones sometimes are, are uh, you know, uh, phased out, disproven, you know, we, we learn more and, you know, change what we think. Um, so I'm not sure I can give a um, authoritative summary of all cognitive biases. Um, but I thought it would be fun and interesting to go through um, some of the major cognitive biases and um, and talk about those. Sounds um, good. Yeah. So cognitive biases, 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 biasing. So cognitive biases, uh, a cognitive bias is a subconscious error in thinking that leads you to misinterpret information from the world around you, uh, affects the uh, rationality and accuracy of decisions and judgments. Um, so the notion of cognitive biases was introduced by Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman in 1972. Uh, those two and their colleagues demonstrated several replicable ways in which human judgments and decisions differ from rational choice theory. Uh, they explained human differences in judgment and decision making in terms of heuristics. Uh, so that's a that's a term that will come up as you learn about this. Heuristics involve mental shortcuts, uh, which give us quick ways to make complex uh, decisions or judgments. A 
few of the most common cognitive biases or, you know, kind of most talked about. So confirmation bias, of course, was the one from the Jeopardy clue. Um, The tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information in a way that confirms or supports one's prior beliefs or values. The phrase was coined by English psychologist Peter Wasson. Um, And there are many types of confirmation bias, but in very broad strokes, um, you can think about them in terms of biased search for information. So you seek out information that is likely to confirm your prior beliefs or assumptions. Biased interpretation of information. Um, So when you encounter sort of ambiguous information, you are likely to interpret it in a way that supports your prior beliefs or assumptions and biased recall of information. So you're more likely to remember uh, things that you've encountered that support your prior assumptions or beliefs. I thought about trying to come up with an example of confirmation bias, but I just feel like we're surrounded by them all the time. Um, So social media and politics are places where this is coming up regularly in our modern world and i will perhaps even relies on it leave it at that um yeah yeah. hindsight bias is another one um the tendency for people to perceive past events as having been more predictable than they actually were Um, people often believe that after an event has occurred they would have predicted or would have known with a high degree of certainty what the outcome would have been beforehand. This can cause distortions of memories of what one knew or believed beforehand. It's a, it's a significant source of overconfidence regarding one's ability to predict the outcomes of future events. Yeah. Uh, anchoring bias is one that's one of my favorite cognitive biases. We we talk about that a lot in my in my house. Uh, I think because of my my husband's work in the in the financial field, he uh, he taught about uh, some of these to um, to new hires, and this was one of those. So the anchoring effect is a cognitive bias where uh, an individual's decisions are influenced by a reference point or anchor. So. Once the value of the anchor is set, subsequent estimates um, or those kinds of things made by an individual might will change from what they would otherwise have been without the anchor. Um, hmm. So in my house, one way that we try to get around anchoring bias is, let's say we need to set a budget for a birthday present one of us will say, you come up with your number and I will come up with my number. And then, you know, once we have each sort of mentally committed to a number, then we say our numbers out loud. Because if you hear someone else's number and then provide your own, you can't know what you would have said without hearing their number, but their number is likely to sway you. So a study that was done with this Uh, experimenters spun a roulette wheel, which was rigged to land on either 10 or 65. And then if it landed on 10, they would ask their, uh, their psych study, you know, uh, subject, whether the 
number of African countries in the UN was greater or less than 10% of the of the hmm. total countries in the UN. And what what number did they think what what percentage of UN countries were countries from the continent of Africa? And they would ask the same thing if it landed on 65, but they would say do you think it's greater or less than 65% and what do you think it is? If you are asked whether it's greater or less than 10%, that that group of participants um, on average guessed about 25%. Hmm. The people who um, were asked whether it was greater or less than 65% on average guessed that the correct answer was around 45%. A number on a roulette wheel should not in any way sway your decision about what you know, what you think a correct estimate is. Um, but just having a number introduced into the conversation moves your mental estimate. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so that's anchoring. Anchoring also is likely one of the reasons, like if you've ever um, gone to a restaurant and there was something absurdly expensive on the menu, it's not actually to sell that thing. It is to put a high price point in your mind you know, like you, you, right. you go to the restaurant that has like the absurd, like $200 ice cream sundae with like the gold leaf in it. And it's not that it's not that they're trying to get you to get the $200 ice cream sundae. It's that they're trying to move your um, sense of what is a reasonable amount of money to spend today up. Right. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's anchoring. Um, availability bias uh, or the availability heuristic is a mental shortcut that relies on immediate examples that come to a person's mind when evaluating a topic, a concept, a decision. We tend to assume falsely that something that comes easily to mind must be important and that can distort our thinking. For example, uh, making people perceive flying, like like airline flights, as more dangerous than driving, um, mm -hmm. right? Because like airline crashes, they're dramatic, they're highly publicized, um, like vivid, you know, terrifying. In reality, statistically, flying an air in an airplane is much safer than driving. But availability bias leads us to believe otherwise. Um, the fundamental attribution error um, is... Uh, I know that one. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, nice. It's whenever if somebody cuts you off on the road, they're an asshole. Right. And anytime you cut someone off, it's because you were in a hurry this one time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Didn't, yes, exactly. I mean, that is that is literally the uh, the example that I have here. is <laughs> uh, <laughs> the tendency for people to devalue or underestimate emphasize situational explanations for someone else's behavior and overemphasize disposition and personality. So someone who cuts you off in traffic is doing that because they are an arrogant jerk. Uh, similarly, like you know, another one where this comes up is um, someone who is late for something, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we, we are likely to attribute that to their laziness, disorganization, whatever. But when we ourselves are late, understand that that you know, the situational factors affecting that for ourselves. You know, you had a family situation, your boss told you at nine o'clock that he needed this thing by 1030, but you had a 10 o'clock meeting. So blah, 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 right, like, mm -hmm. 
Yeah. But when you assume that other people's behavior is solely a reflection or more a reflection on their personality or their um, something fundamental about them, that's the fundamental attribution error. I'm almost done here. Uh, Overconfidence or the Dunning-Kruger effect. We know this one. Uh, The Dunning-Kruger effect is the cognitive bias whereby people with low ability at a task overestimate their ability. Some researchers also include in their definition the opposite effect for high performers, the tendency to underestimate their skills. The initial study was published by... David Dunning and Justin Kruger in 1999. And that initial study focused on logical reasoning, grammar, and social skills. Um, Since then, various other studies have been conducted across a wide range of tasks, finding the Dunning-Kruger effect um, in fields such as business, politics, medicine, driving, aviation, spatial memory, school exams, and literacy. Yay. (laughs) We uh, often joke around about the Dunning-Kruger effect. It tends to cause people to overestimate their ability, but not like to wildly overestimate their ability. People in the bottom quartile will generally think they're in the top half. Mm. But the hyperbolic social media version where like, oh, everybody who has no idea what they're doing thinks they're a genius is um, overstated. Sure. Yeah. Framing effect is a cognitive bias where people decide on options based on whether the options are presented with positive or negative connotations. People tend to avoid risk when a negative frame is presented, uh, but seek or accept risk when a positive frame is presented. Um, For example, if you are seriously ill and you are being offered a treatment, the likelihood of accepting that treatment depends on whether it is presented to you as a 90% chance of survival or a 10% chance of mortality, even oh, though man. those are the same thing. Same yeah. thing. <laughs> yep. And possibly you experienced what I did when you like initially encountered those numbers. It was like, I would like the 90% chance of survival, not the 10% chance of mortality, even though, again, those are the same thing. And you know that we're having a conversation about cognitive biases and the framing effect. Um, So that is nowhere near all of the cognitive biases, but those are some of the big ones. And I have a bunch more in the quiz, if you're ready. Okay. Oh, I'm always ready. All right. Question one. The clustering illusion is the tendency to erroneously consider the inevitable streaks or clusters arising in small samples from random distributions to be non-random. For example, when you have a small group of people and two people have the same birthday, which is going to happen with some regularity, some regularity in small groups of people, you know, and people like freak out like, oh my gosh, like what are they? It can't be a coincidence. Um, Yeah, uh, the odds are high. So that, that's the clustering illusion. Um, connecting to that topic only via word association in my own brain. Trypophobia is the fear of or aversion to what? <laughs> <laughs> Trypophobia is T-R-Y-P-O phobia. And I jumped from clustering illusion. Clustering. Um, Do you want a hint? I would love a hint. Uh People who have this phobia might be grossed out by, like, lotus seed pods. I don't know what a lotus seed pod looks like, so... Or even is. Trypophobia. Clusters. Uh, 
Yeah, I have no idea where this is going. Uh, let's say... Yeah, I don't know. Uh, fear of bouquets. <laughs> um, I like that guess. Uh, trypophobia is the fear of clusters of holes. How? Just just Google image lotus seed pods real quick, Kyle. Ooh. <laughs> Setting off my trypophobia. Oh, those look cool. They, they do look kind of cool. Uh, yeah, so, so trypophobia um, is the fear or disgust of closely packed holes. That is so weird. Yeah. <laughs> oh, look, trypophobia alert. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. It is a thing. It. Yep, trypophobia. It seems to be pretty widespread, and people have speculated about whether there's like some like evolutionary advantage or some like th- like threat in the wild or something you know associated with these A kind of, vi- of these visual patterns but yeah that's called trypophobia and now you know about it great yeah it was really i mean it was i i found it very affirming to learn that it was a thing because those lotus things have always freaked me out anyway question two the Bader Meinhof phenomenon is an example of the availability heuristic. I think we've talked about it on here. What exactly happens when one experiences the Bader or Bader Meinhof phenomenon? It's, oh man, we have talked about this, and I know what this is, and now I'm now I'm second guessing myself. Oh man, now it's sticking in my head, and I'm not sure if this is right. I bet it is. Um, isn't it the same? Isn't it the same as the Mandela effect? No, I don't oh, think no, so. It's not. It's not. It's the it's the it's the idea that you hear something it's like when you hear something once and then you hear it everywhere. Yes, that's that's it. All right, you're yeah. getting credit for that. Um yeah, the the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon is um when you encounter some, something is brought to your attention and once it's brought to it, your attention, you perceive that you are encountering it with improbable frequency. Mhm. It's an it's an attentional cognitive bias it's that Mm -hmm. um when something is sort of brought to your uh to your attention and you notice how frequently it appears it seems it seems unlikely surely this can't have been happening all all around me you know this this term can't have been being used this regularly and i didn't notice right yeah uh so that's 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 butter and you are at 10 points question three we didn't have those newfangled car seats, and I'm just fine, is a particularly stark example of this bias. No connection to the show hosted by Jeff Probst. Uh, well, I guess that would have to be survivor bias. Yeah, survivorship <laughs> bias most, okay. most often, but yeah, survivor bias is, is correct as well. Yeah, there are, there are less stark examples of survivorship bias, um, such as looking at the growth of companies over many years, right? Because like, in order to look at the growth, they need to exist across the period. So any companies that went out of business during that time would not be considered. But the car seats and seatbelts one is an especially noticeable example. That's hilarious. Yeah, it's like, cool. All right, you're at 20 points. Uh, question four, the backfire effect is the subject of a fascinating comic strip by artist Matthew Inman, a comic artist and game designer responsible for such games as Exploding Kittens and Bears vs. Babies. Uh, What is the surprisingly bland name of his website? Uh, Exploding Kittens. 
is the oatmeal. Yes. Yes. That is correct. Uh, Exploding Kittens is a great game, by the way. Have you? I assume. I assume you know that. Um, I, but I, I have played it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he wrote a good comic strip on the oatmeal about the backfire effect, which is a psychological effect in which um, if you have a belief that you have emotional investment in and then you encounter information that you know runs counter to that belief, that you perceive it as a threat and dig in even harder, believe that belief more strongly so uh, an example that he uses is um, being committed to the idea that the founding fathers were good people. <laughs> when you encounter contradictory information that can cause the backfire effect, wherein you perceive that information as threatening and you need to sort of, you know, fortify your belief in, in the goodness of the founding fathers. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's the backfire effect. You're at 30 points. Question five. While we generally speak of cognitive biases in individuals, there are closely related social psychology phenomena. For example, the phenomenon whereby others' expectations of a target person affect the target person's performance. This phenomenon shares a name with what George Bernard Shaw play? Why, that would be Pygmalion. It is Pygmalion. Yes, indeed. The Pygmalion effect in which uh, others' expectations of someone influence that person's performance. Right. Um, So you are at 40 points, and let's call this final category American Novels. Okay. I'm pretty bad at these. Mm. (laughs) Uh, I'm just... I'm going to go 20 points. Okay. For 60 points, if you are correct. One of my favorite cognitive biases, I've used that phrase more than once. <laughs> um, <laughs> one, of my, one of my favorite cognitive biases is sunk cost fallacy. Mm. Uh, so to make fun of myself a little bit, one example of sunk, col- sunk cost fallacy is when I said I hated the first 200 pages of this modern classic by David Foster Wallace, but <laughs> I've spent so long reading it, I'd better read the other 900 pages. Yeah, that uh, was the infinite jest. It was infinite jest. Boy, do, does sunk cost fallacy, like, it it hits hard. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. Sunk cost fallacy. I mean, you can know about sunk cost fallacy and then just keep on doing it. I mean, knowing about it helps to avoid doing it, but... Even yeah. so, it's hard not to, because there's always that part of you that, like, no, it's reasonable. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Ugh. That's the thing about cognitive biases. They make sense within your own brain. Yep. All right. Well, you have uh, finished with 60 points. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Thank you for the quiz and the deep dive. It was very helpful. Ah, I'm glad to hear it. Um, And thanks, listeners, for spending your time with us. I hope you also thought the deep dive was helpful. Uh, Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you would. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who watch Jeopardy, let them know about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. 
And we'll be back next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker.